everyone. Thanks for coming back to Life, the University, and Everything, a podcast of mostly academics, brewing, sipping, and spilling tea. I'm your host, Kat Gonzalez, and this special series is called Life, the University, and COVID-19, because especially during these times, life is so much more than just the university. Today, I had my friend MC Anderson on the podcast, and she studies environmental factors related to homelessness. She studies social networks. And so we caught up, we talked about how we're doing in the COVID-19 era and thoughts on the privilege that housed people have. We also talked about what does it mean to be a good neighbor during this time? I hope your tea kettles are all warmed up. So get ready. Biscuits sound so good right now. Oh, they were, man. They were cream biscuits because we didn't have buttermilk, but it's really, I don't discriminate when it comes to carbs. (laughs) Yes. Carb inclusivity. (laughs) (laughs) What tea are you drinking today, MC? I'm not really a tea person, so I've opted for coffee today, as I do every other morning of my adult life. But it is afternoon. Oh, it is, isn't it? It's kind of a constant flow. That's Um, fair. What is time anyway in the time of coronavirus? A construct, nothing more. (laughs) So you just have straight, straight black coffee. Oh, no. I'm not a sugary kind of person. Um, I mean, aside from my personality, but um, I usually go with just cream. Okay. Cut the bitterness just a little. Mm. More of a savory experience than a sweet one. Nice. And I have some Mediterranean chamomile here, oh. some loose leaf. Oh, loose leaf. What kind of yeah. uh, tea strainer? Is that what you call it? Yeah, I have a, um infuser, and infuser. it looks like an umbrella. <laughs> here, let me really? Show you. Yeah. My mom got it for me. Look it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that makes me think of Mary Poppins. I know. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Uh, so how have you been this past week in this time of shelter in place and the coronavirus? I've been good. I find it a bit ironic seeing as I have been working remote uh, for the past two years doing field work in Nashville and came back to uh, the Bay Area to not work remotely <laughs> as I'm TAing class. Um, and even more ironically, it's an infectious disease class. So Good timing for that, I guess. I think they've had to change the curriculum, or not the curriculum, the syllabus to where the first three weeks are going to be about COVID. So that's pretty interesting. I'm looking forward to learning about it. Uh, So yeah, it's been been okay. It hasn't been as much of an adjustment for me working remotely as I think it has been for most most everyone else. Um, So I don't know, it feels pretty much the same with that added element of terror when you read the news every morning. So that's the only difference, but it's a Oh, yes. (laughs) One minor difference. Yes. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Yeah. Like, like you said, the working remotely part is not even the biggest thing about this whole thing. And uh, so as far as being at home, it's been chill and I'm glad to have a home and that has windows and stuff like that but 
yeah, in terms of like working remotely, quote unquote, yeah, it's hard to concentrate, but that's not because I'm at home. It's because of the dread and terror of the global crisis. Yeah. Um, I think so many people are struggling with that. I mean, everyone I've talked to from our cohort and beyond is, you know, they're like, oh, this is, I'm just justifying this in my mind as an extended spring break because it's the only way I can cope. I mean, you know, it is scary. I mean, it's, yeah, there's, there's funny memes and we can do zoom happy hours and socialize remotely and all those things and have, have fun doing that. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't take away the, like, it's easy sometimes to forget like why we're doing that and how frightening it is that we have to do that right now. Yeah, exactly. And like you just said, like we are like using all these coping mechanisms, but like that's kind of, that's exactly what they are. They're coping mechanisms. And in some regards, those of us who are looking at the news are feeling this impending sense of grief and current sense of grief of like what our world is like shifting into and uh some people like yeah everyone has their different coping mechanisms for that and mine has been to like externalize that a lot and just like not look at my work the past couple weeks which has been really healthy but like something i'm curious to talk with you about is like your thoughts on the unhealthy ways that academia is perpetuating uh workism as a coping mechanism and how that is not good in times of disaster, but also how that's not good in normal quote unquote times. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Just back to what you're saying about different people doing different things. Like, yeah, I'm just like kind of just rolling with um, like what my mind needs right now, what my body needs right now. And, you know, it's time to drink tea and like reflect on what is meaningful (laughs) And like maybe and, do something for society, like give blood and go totally. to, <laughs> to the food bank. And honestly, there's no shame in mindless distractions like Tiger King on Netflix. Totally binge that. Uh, <laughs> great. I've great. heard so much about that. Yeah. <laughs> great use of time. Like just pure. Uh, I think it's like a meme maker's dream. I th- I spent a good chunk of this morning laughing at those. But I would like to add that. Yes, being in academia during this time does have significant challenges, but we are also in a very fortunate position in that our jobs are not at risk, right? I mean, we're still, everything is the, the same, uh, using air quotes, I guess you mm-hmm. can. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're not at risk for losing our jobs, right? We still get a steady paycheck. We can still work from home for the most part. I mean, you and I can. There's probably a lot of like lab-based folks like wet labs, bench work, that kind of thing that cannot. Um, So I'm sure they're in a bit of a different boat. But yeah, I do feel very lucky in that regard. Although I did just read a friend of mine on Facebook, I went to Cambridge with, I think, posted that she had some kind of contractual, like maybe it was a postdoc position um, at a UK university. And I think she just started recently in this, uh, and then COVID happened and they canceled her contract. So Mm. she's without a job. So I guess no one's in yeah. academic. So I do feel particularly lucky. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important to acknowledge our economic privilege in this time as PhD students. Like who would have thought, mm-hmm. right? Um, but yeah, we are so privileged. Um, even if you just, if you look at all of the economy right now 
I mean, COVID's bad enough, but like the economic meltdown is also enough to give one rage and trepidation. Even if you just look at the academic ecosystem, it's important to acknowledge the, uh, I guess, like, quote unquote, expendability that the institutions give certain positions Mm -hmm. and how uh, adjuncts or postdocs are high at risk right now um, of not being able to keep their jobs. And uh, let's not forget all the service workers Mm -hmm. that clean our universities. And yeah, just like all these institutions are putting out statements of like, we're so great and we value our community and we're going to take care of each other. And uh, the big, the big leaguers, the IVs and the IV pluses, many of them are not taking care of the workers who drive hours to have a low wage job. And it's, it's scary. I mean, wage workers, I would say are essential personnel to universities, right? They They keep things running. So let's not forget about them. I don't know what Stanford's doing in regards to that. Do you? They're not paying. They're they're not yet. There, yeah, there are petitions going out, but um, they've ensured the continued payment of some of their workers and mostly like faculty, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, and uh, staff who have contracts and stuff. But as far as like the service workers, those of uh, the workers who clean our facilities and um who serve food like they don't have students to serve food to anymore so a lot of them got laid off uh is that through contracts with existing like with outside companies my understanding is that stanford does pay them but like yeah that stanford is their boss essentially gotcha don't quote me on that i could drop a petition in the description of this episode too yeah that'd be great yeah just so solidarity Mm -hmm. with the people who keep our places running and are really essential, like you said. Yeah, so I was wondering if you could like give also a brief description of yourself and what you study and maybe as much as you're comfortable sharing like your journey the past few years and how that's affecting your lens of this COVID-19 crisis. Yeah, so I am a fifth year PhD student in the Department of Earth System Science at Stanford, and my work focuses on social and environmental determinants of health among people who are experiencing homelessness, and my work is based in Nashville, which is more or less where I'm from, so it was really important to me to get back to my home community and try and do meaningful work there. I think that's the plight of every academic to (laughs) find some work that we hope is meaningful. So yeah, uh, and then I think I probably had a rather unconventional, well, I say that, I I think it's more common than people care to admit, (laughs) Um, but my PhD process has been quite interesting in that I was originally, like when I was accepted to Stanford, uh, I was supposedly going to be working on this project looking at uh, STD spread uh, and transmission, all that in uh, Southern Africa. And it wasn't super clear to me at that time, but that grant wasn't in place. Like we, our lab didn't have it yet. So when I arrived at Stanford, it was this whole, oh, we're waiting to hear, we're waiting to hear. Never really heard. <laughs> so um, cut to my second year and I still didn't really have a, a set project. I didn't have a field site and I came to Stanford wanting to do field work. So that was a super important component of the dissertation to me. 
so about halfway through my second year, it became pretty obvious that that project was not happening anytime soon. So I was faced with the reality of having to come up with my own dissertation project, which was something that I, I did have to do that in my master's, but for some reason that just a master's seems like lower stakes, you know, when you're devoting like five plus years of your life to something as you are in a PhD, you take that decision a bit more seriously, one would hope. Um, <laughs> or else if you were not happy with what you chose, that would get old real quick. Uh, so yeah, I really stopped and thought about what aspects of the, the Africa project, the Namibia specifically, what aspects of that project I found the most interesting and what I wanted to look at. So I was living in San Francisco at the time and um, driving through uh, the city and seeing all these homeless encampments. It's no secret that San Francisco's homeless population is, I mean, it's out of control. It's a public health emergency. Um, people are dying on the streets like this is not, this is not good. Um, but it's not exclusive to San Francisco, right? We see these problems in pretty much every other major US city. Uh, America's in the midst of an affordable housing crisis. This is not news. So I study uh, social networks mostly, which is looking at connections between people within populations and how that affects health. And so seeing these homeless communities, I became interested in the social processes that happen between homeless people, like specifically among homeless people. You have those relations between like homeless and housed, right? You have like you're homeless, presumably you have housed social network members, maybe family, maybe friends, but how do homeless people themselves as a community cope with homelessness and how does that affect health? So diving into that a little bit more, the obvious choice would have been to study that here as Stanford is in the Bay Area. That was an option. Uh, <laughs> but given that I'm from Nashville, I uh, love that city, consider it my home community, I really wanted to get back and do the work there. Uh, and all my lit reviews and, you know, preliminary research building this project, I saw, I think, one published paper in an academic journal that referenced homelessness in Nashville. So it became pretty clear to me that that was where, that was where it was at for me. So I um, moved back there for two years and spent about a year and a half of that doing uh, primary data collection. So over 18 months, I interviewed 500 people experiencing homelessness. And I wasn't a part of any team or anything like that. I had a couple of RAs, um, and they maybe did combined 10 to 15%, if that, of the primary data collection. So it was mostly me going out on the streets, uh, just cold calling, basically people who were homeless, and uh, talking to them about their health. I built the survey myself, so that took about an hour per person. So we got into some in-depth <laughs> in-depth interviews there, um, but it was super meaningful. I loved it. And yeah, I'm open to do something good with it, like get a PhD, but also <laughs> use that data to, uh, to give back to the city of Nashville. So it's not staying with me. It's going to go to service providers and things like that. Yeah. What was most meaningful to you about that project and continues to be? And what is, yeah, what does meaning mean? <laughs> To oh, you in the context of work. That's very meta. What does meaningful mean? Well, I think the most meaningful part of that work to me was the relationships I built and continue to maintain. Even though I'm out here, I just texted a friend who's homeless the other day asking how they were holding up during COVID. So yeah, I think that, you know, just making friends that you wouldn't otherwise make 
that opened my eyes to just a whole new way of life that some people have no choice but to to live in and to know yeah yeah probably that probably relationships yeah that's awesome mm-hmm. also like when we were talking earlier you're mentioning like how ironic it is that you're back here you're back in san francisco right. and but now you're working remotely from san francisco and mm-hmm. I was thinking, like, um, so you and I are friends in real life, uh, for the listeners to <laughs> context. Um, and I only saw you once in person. Is that right? Yep. So you've come back. You're correct. And now you're back. No, twice, twice. twice. We had, I saw you, well, you came and helped me move in. And then we had our last happy hour before Right. Yes. Shelter in place ensued. That was like days before. That, days. Yeah, that was like one of the last in-person interactions I've had <laughs> <laughs> with people other than my roommate. So, but I don't know. I was just, I just thought that was like interesting and kind of also ironic. And I was wondering how you're feeling uh, now being back and like, do you feel more closely connected with the community? And also like, what was it like being quote unquote, away for those times. I do. I mean, for the week and a half I was at Stanford, it was great (laughs) Um, before everything kind of went to hell in the handbasket. But yeah, I, in general, I do think I am more productive here. Just there is that accountability factor. You see everyone else working remotely. Like, I think in the past I'd be like, oh, I've, you know, field work's weird. You have a weird schedule. You know, you can kind of justify like, taking it easy on some days, but now it's like, that's done. There's no excuse. You're in the same boat as everyone else. Like <laughs> got to get things done. But in terms of being away, I, I feel in a way like I got away with something, <laughs> not got away with something, but pulled off something that ended up being a really great thing. Uh, it's just like all my friends in Nashville, for instance, are, are not academics. So uh, being around people that come from different walks of life, have different professions, it does do a great service in reminding you that life does exist outside of academia. So all my social conversations were not built around work, which I really appreciated. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was great. I also sort of patched together this support network, um, academic support network while I was out there. So I have two committee members that uh, dissertation committee members that are faculty at Vanderbilt. So I was able to rely on them pretty heavily uh, during my time in the field. Yeah, I really think the one thing I learned from that experience is a PhD is what you make it. I think I spent a lot of time not waiting around necessarily, but hopefully (laughs) uh, thinking that, you know, someone was going to like step in and provide guidance, all these things. Like, how do you build a dissertation? Like, I didn't know how to do that. I don't think most people do. That's why you do a PhD. If you knew how to do that, you'd already have a PhD, right? Mm. Um, So once I realized that that probably wasn't likely to happen at Stanford, um, just by nature of uh, a more hands-off advisor and our interdisciplinary department where there aren't, like, most people don't study anything remotely related to other people. So it's hard to find people in your field, right, that are nearby. So it became pretty obvious that, you know, in order to make it work, I just had to like, like I said, patch together the support network. And that took a lot of time and a lot of effort. But in the end, 
and I'm by no means at the end. I, <laughs> no. I would like to issue that caveat. Um, but on this side of things, I think it did make me a better scientist because these are all things that if you want to continue to do science, you're going to have to learn how to do anyway. And being forced to figure them out on your own, it is awful <laughs> during the meantime. It sucks. I cannot tell you how much I yeah, cried, how many times I almost gave up, all of that. Great for the old mental health. Um, I don't know that I would recommend it unless you absolutely <laughs> had to go that route, but I am really proud of the work I've done. That's awesome. Yeah. What are you thinking about lately in regards to your work and regards to COVID-19 and how that affects homeless populations? And mm. uh, yeah, like what are some of the reflections you've had the past week? So this is something I've been thinking a lot about. Um, I don't know about you, but it's been really hard to, for me to find meaning in my work in light of a global pandemic. It seems like nothing else really matters. And that's really incongruous with like the premise of academia, right? Because we're like spending all this time trying to convince people that, you know, provide grants that like, oh, our work's going to change the world. Like this is going to better humanity. Like this is the best research ever. Like we're going to do X, Y, Z the world's going to be a better place. But like, it, it's not, right? <laughs> it can't be until we get this pandemic under control. A global mm -hmm. pandemic. I mean, I've, mm -hmm. if that's not a, like a worldwide catastrophe, I don't know what is. So Maybe climate change. But maybe, cli <laughs> maybe climate change. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, It is, yeah. I mean, these things are important, right? So it's been hard to sort of, make that argument that my research is important when there's people thousands yeah. of people dying um yeah so, so are you able to say like no to productivity culture and use use this time to do more meaningful things whether that's just thoughts or mm. is there is there like a tug of war there yeah i don't i don't know that i subscribe to what is productivity culture is that like you're only valued based on what you produce is that what that means yeah yeah um yeah I guess if I thought that way this would be pretty stressful wouldn't it um <laughs> I, but, then, but you don't but I know I guess yeah. I'm not really wired that way um I have tried to think of ways that I could can speak to issues surrounding COVID-19 uh like through my own research so I've been working on who knows what it'll be but a piece this last week um, talking about COVID-19 and homelessness and making the argument that homelessness itself is a pre-existing condition. And if COVID-19 gets into these communities, it's going to be disastrous for a myriad of reasons. So yeah, I think that for me, and I, I understand that not everyone has this ability to like tie their work directly to COVID-19, but it's been an interesting thought exercise and sort of helped me re-identify meaning in my work, making that link between homelessness and COVID-19, because it's, it's an important one, for sure. Mm -hmm. What do you think about, like, all of the local government actions recently surrounding trying to protect homeless populations? Right. And, um, for example, like, governments leasing out hotels and providing housing, temporary housing for homeless individuals. Well, I think we have a marginal win, <laughs> like we being the homeless community and their advocates um, have a marginal win and that the 
COVID relief bill um, allocated $4 billion to homeless relief efforts during this crisis. And it, it seems like it's largely up to local governments to decide like how they wanna use that. But it's my feeling that in order to successfully curb this pandemic, we're gonna have to get people off the streets. Infected people who are homeless, uh, I mean, you're already in terrible health if you're homeless, right? It's, homelessness is bad for health, we know this. So your question was, uh, what do I think about like policies that are like promoting temporary housing? Yeah, especially in light of like what is an emergency policy versus what is a solution. So how do you grapple with knowing right. that homelessness is going to continue and then maybe people are going to forget? Yeah, fortunately, <laughs> this COVID-19 relief bill has allocated um, $4 billion in homeless assistance. Um, and it's my opinion that local governments need to use that to get people off the streets, because if we don't make this a priority, it's possible that we'll see uh, COVID-19 infecting homeless populations at even higher rates than in the general mm. population. And this is due to a variety of factors, right? These are people that are forced to reside in public spaces. They don't have access to regular hygiene. If you're in shelters, you're around hundreds of people. That could be catastrophic um, once it gets into the shelter system. And you also likely have poor health to begin with. So I think uh, that it's fair to say that if COVID-19 infiltrates the homeless population, that's going to that has the possibility to sustain the epidemic in the general population. Um, because these are people, so it, if a large number of homeless people become infected, these are going to be people that are hard to track down. They don't have cell phones. They don't have regular access to internet. They don't have transportation to healthcare services often among people that like forego shelters, don't use services. These are people that, um, at least people that I've observed, to have a, a serious mistrust in the healthcare system, often due to serious trauma. Often they've, they've tried to receive healthcare services before and have been discriminated against. So these are people that are gonna go undetected. So if we think of public health, as, as one health, we cannot forget people that are homeless because if we don't address that COVID-19 and that incredible, incredibly vulnerable population, uh, the general population is going to continue to be at risk. Uh, I wonder if we could switch gears and talk about community a little bit more, yeah. um, especially in light of your PhD journey so far and how you shared that when you were back in Nashville, you built up a diverse sort of friend circle who uh, lots of them weren't in academia and that was awesome. And that allowed you to realize more fully that life is not just inside academia. So... Mm-hmm. Like, what are you bringing back here to the Bay Area with those lessons? Like, what are some reflections you have on your community going forward in both and also like having feet in like multiple places? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure you um, adhere to this philosophy yourself, but I try and remind myself every day, no matter where I am, natural or here, that I am not what I do professionally. <laughs> uh, so the work I produce doesn't define me as a person. And that really helps. Uh, that's certainly a value. Um, but it's not the most important value to me. And that helps me stay healthy. 
let's see, community here. Um, I, well, just community in general. I think that in my case, I do very applied research. So without community, my research would not exist. Um, so I built my project in partnership with countless community partners in Nashville who uh, work with homeless populations. And that really, I mean, even now, like when I'm running these analyses and like generating results and working on manuscripts, like the first people I want, I'm like most excited to, to share with are my, these partners in this research. And they're non-academics, right? These are charity organizations, they're nonprofits, they're groups like that. And they're seriously under, underserved when it comes to like, like access to data, right? Homeless, the homelessness data is just inherently hard to collect. Hidden population, people like sitting down and talking to people with like in-depth interviews is low on the priority list if you're a service provider, right? You want to make sure they have food to eat, a, you know, a sleeping bag to stay warm, like a tent to protect them from the elements. And rightfully so, but those are high priorities on the list. Um, so that really keeps me motivated in the sense that um, I'm doing this for a community I care a great deal about that is really the driving force behind what I'm doing. Maybe, not maybe, definitely more so than um, academic prestige. Mm -hmm. How does that affect your philosophy of like friendships and community outside of your work and outside your, even your community engaged research? Like, yeah, how does that even affect your day to day or like your weekends and, mm. and moving back? Yeah. Uh, I mean, who knows about moving back with all this <laughs> pandemic? As a as an aside, there were all, there was also just a, a huge tornado that ravaged Nashville, um, and my dad lost his home in that, so he's actually in my old place in Nashville. Which, thank goodness, I'm not there. We'd be quarantined together in a tiny little one bedroom. But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, just staying in touch with all those people. I Facetime with like two of my friends from Nashville multiple times a week. Yeah, I don't, I think it's really important when you're a PhD student to like maintain connections with people that are not PhD students, even if you want to go into academia, even if, um, yeah, like even if that is your end goal. And it's not like to serve the purpose and that like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm connecting with the common folk, right? I mean, that sounds like yeah. horribly elitist. Yeah, it's, it's not like a service. <laughs> no, it's not a service. It's also like, not like a productivity hack. Right, no. <laughs> yeah, like there's nothing, like, yeah, you can't game the system. Like, oh yes, I'm going to like view these humans as a commodity to like further my own personal game. No, I just think it's important. I mean, we're no better than any, or worse or whatever than anyone else, right? And I think that when people hear academia, there's this like inherent barrier where it's like, oh, I don't, I can't speak to that world or I don't belong in that world or whatever. But I, my friends are always asking me about like my research. How's that going? What are some key findings? Um, how'd you do that? I love those kinds of conversations because I think it speaks to, you know, all different disciplines. I study health. One of my best friends is a nurse and she she and I have been talking a lot about um, like COVID-19 and emergency departments and uh, things like that. So, yeah. Um, That's cool. I don't know. I've never, I've never thought about this question before. I just uh, befriend people I like. <laughs> so, 
what, what do you think about that? Like, does, how, how do you make that link between like your social network and your professional life? Is there one? Um, I think it's funny we're talking about networks and you study networks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ha, 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 ha. And I still don't know the answer to this question. I can't oh, yeah. even make this link successfully. Yeah. I think I was mostly curious to just like during this time of distance and how connection doesn't have to be a function of distance, especially during a time where I feel like more and more of us are realizing like, or at least just like getting back to what our core values are. So Mm. like I'm noticing a lot of academics being like, yo, I can't do this right now because like I need to take care of my family. Yeah. Um, Or some people being like, yo, I can't do this right now because like I'm worried about all the families in my neighborhood that are going hungry. And so, I don't know. I just been thinking about like for myself, like I live, I live in Palo Alto. I live close to Stanford there's this like construct of a bubble. Mm. There are like these bigger questions that emerge of just like, who's my neighbor? Mm. Um, Who do I take care of? Does your neighbor have a house? Yeah, exactly. Um, And then I think that's like even more interesting, like connecting to you and your journey, your story where like you're like, you're very deeply rooted in Nashville, but you're also able to be like deeply rooted here. And then just the nature of the pandemic kind of like erasing distance, but also magnifying it. And like, who is our neighbor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think every, in a global pandemic, as it turns out, everyone is your neighbor, right? I mean, it's, it does erase that barrier of distance because I, I don't think there's a single person that hasn't stopped to think about oh God, what if this affects people I love, right? And so the natural response is to reach out to those people maybe more than you normally would. Hey, <laughs> to make sure like, are you okay? Are you coughing? You know, all those questions. But also, I mean, like with my grandmother, LaRue, bless her heart, who lives Aww. in uh, Godsboro, Alabama. She's 83. I think she'll kill me if she's 82. We'll say, we'll say 82. They're going to shoot low. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's been, she texted me and she's, was like this is scary watching the news like what do you think you study health and it's like my god my grandma's asking me for life advice like this is my time to shine um (laughs) given that she supported me a great deal through my um Mm. academic endeavors but she uh expressed concern over like going out in public and things like that but she lives alone so she does have to eat has to get groceries all these things um so yeah, I've checked in on her way more than normal, um, encouraging her to like take her community up on their offers to help. Um, she does so much for others. And I was like, LaRue, now is the time to let mm. others for you. And uh, so we've been hounding her and I think she's listening a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure that's the case with everyone being like far away from their family members, especially their family members that are super, uh, super vulnerable. Um, that's all we can do, right, is check in. Um, mm-hmm. So I think this pandemic has moved all of those excuses or barriers, whatever, like why we're maybe slow to respond or haven't called our 
grandma's in two weeks or, or whatever. Um, and even on a more local level, just the only thing, I mean, a great source of relief for me during the day is to go out for runs or go exercise or something. Um, since that's really all there is to do. And yeah. Tristan the other day was like, yeah, you have to do that so you don't gain the COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That was a good one. I hadn't heard that. Um, But even in doing that, like daily exercise, people I have noticed are not on their phones as much. They're not like, you know, their face isn't glued to a screen. Families are like out with their kids. People are running. People wave to me like while I'm running. I've never experienced that in San Francisco. Like, hey, how's it going? What's up? Like, you know, the wink in the gun kind of thing with people on bikes. Like, when was this a thing? Like, I'm really into it. Like, I yeah. saw this dad drawing on the sidewalk with chalk with his kid on, like, a Tuesday afternoon, you know, presumably because there's nothing else to do. So, in a weird way, I think it has fostered deeper human connection despite the distance. Yeah, I agree. I think that Silicon Valley and San Francisco up and down the peninsula have suffered this sort of chronic ongoing I guess I'll just call it a sickness of like disconnection. And Mm -hmm. one of my friends coined this term, so I won't, I won't take credit for it, but this like crowded loneliness that we all experience here because everyone's just so Mm. connected to their own device, like you were just saying. And I've just been thinking like how that's kind of flipped on its head a little bit where we're all inside now, um, but perhaps we're not, um, well, first of all, we, we can't gather in crowds, so there's no right. crowdedness. And, mm-hmm. you know, the loneliness is still there, like, but it doesn't have to be that way. And, like, there can be more connections. So literally this morning, going on for a walk in my neighborhood, I uh, was walking, and it wasn't even someone out walking on the street. It was someone in their living room who I, like, saw through the window, and I, like, <laughs> looked up. I like they smiled at me and I was just like oh. so surprised. <laughs> ah! <laughs> no, it wasn't like that, but it was just like that like split second of like like remembering to smile back, mm-hmm. but then being like, wow, this is such a shocker to my emotional system. Like I can't like process these interactions quick enough. So I'm trying to like go out and like smile to people and wave and stuff, but like it's always so surprising when people like smile back. Because it's sort yeah. of like a flip of, of the norm. Right. It's like we're getting back to our like basic human decency in a way, right? Like acknowledging the I- existence of other people. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what a concept. Yeah. Yeah. One silver lining here. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So are you're, you're holding up okay and coping well so far? So far, so good. I mean, I feel very lucky to be in a, you know, in a safe space. Um, we have like a beautiful garden in the back that's like a nice little oasis when you do need an outside, you know, some time outside in the sunshine. I, I have no complaints. I mean, I think everyone is, would not choose <laughs> to be quarantined, right? But as far as quarantines go, I feel like I'm incredibly lucky. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, same. Also, like you mentioned mental health earlier, and mm-hmm. I feel like for myself, I've been given the struggles in order to like gain the tools that I need Mm. to like cope and survive and like thrive. So I'm like, actually my mental space is like pretty chill right now, which I'm really grateful for. 
same. And I, I mean, like probably every other PhD student, I have incredibly high anxiety. I have OCD, all these things. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I, I think now is an excellent opportunity to practice those tools. And I mean, right now it's, it's working. Who knows what tomorrow will bring. And that's not to say it's perfect. Like I've still woken up in the mm -hmm. middle of the night, totally freaked. Mm -hmm. um, as someone that comes from a bit of an infectious disease background, I'm like trying to run these numbers in my head using like different parameter values for like how infectious this thing is or whatever and like what this means. And it's like, mm -hmm. all right, like you can't do that in your head for one. Uh, <laughs> so, so stop. Um, <laughs> stop also, using this computing power in your head. Right, it doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> But then also I've tried to limit my news exposure. I don't know if that's something that's worked for you. Like in Same. the mornings, I, my, I call it my daily dose of cheer, obviously ironic. Um, but I'll look at, you know, case counts or whatever. And then I'm like, okay, that's done. You don't get to look at that again until tomorrow. Mm. I'm just obsessing over it because there's so many yeah. sources where you can like, where they update on the hour, sometimes even more frequently than that. And I just be like, refresh, refresh, like keep that as an open tab. Mm. That's just not no way to be. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I was fighting that really, really heavily a couple weeks ago, mm -hmm. um, especially when I, I knew it was about to really ramp up in the U.S., um, but it hadn't yet. And we were like behind Italy and the nature of a global pandemic and a global news cycle is that it's 24 seven. Mm -hmm. And so like, I feel like my brain went straight from obsession about the presidential primaries to obsession about COVID-19. Mm. And yeah, it was like really hard to sleep at night. Right. So I was just like, there's so much to learn and like so much, we were still in like preparation phase back then. Mm -hmm. We hadn't yet like received the shelter in place mandate. So I was just like, oh, like how do I control everybody else's behavior right now? <laughs> Right. It's not a great question well, to be asking yourself. No, and I think that's yeah. like the root of the obsession is mm -hmm. we think that consuming all of this news or refreshing our browsers like 10,000 times a day, that's somehow going to like, that's some piece of control we have over this, mm -hmm. um, the situation. And, you know, no one's good with uncertainty, right? And this is, this is one big, this is nothing but. Yep, a <laughs> I whole mean, pot is, of uncertainty. <laughs> exactly. And I think, you know, seeing all of these preparations in place, you know, these like triage centers that have been set up in hospital parking garages and like potential overflow beds for hospitals. Yeah, yeah. and that's horrifying. And for me, yeah. I think the struggle with like the urge to refresh and stuff, it's like knowing we have all those precautionary measures in place, but it's a matter of when. I mean, I'm optimistic that hopefully it's still a matter of if, but maybe more pessimistic or realistic, mm -hmm. <laughs> depending on how you look mm -hmm. at it. Projections would be like, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So yeah. I think my motivation for refreshing everything was like, is it now? Is it now? Is it happening now? Like, is this it? Is this it? Like, what point mm -hmm. in the curve are we at? Um, because, you know, time will tell, right? And that, yeah, that's a huge window of uncertainty. We, can, we can't do anything. And I yeah. struggle with that. Yeah. Well, and the reality is like to all of us who are like staying home and sheltering a place like that is the one thing we can do and we mm -hmm. are doing it. So, right. um, yeah, I just encourage everyone to stay home. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> keep on PSA. keeping on. <laughs> Don't know if y'all have heard, uh, but <laughs> stay home. Stay home. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank but it's just to our TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> For real. Yeah. I'll just like edit it down to that. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's especially the past week maybe even two weeks as I just feel like, yeah, we're just buckling up for the next month or two of whatever happens next. Um, but yeah, it's just so important to get outside to get mm-hmm. that vitamin D. Um, I'm just noticing like how cliche it is, but how really valuable it is to be present, especially with all the uncertainty. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but every time I walk outside, like, the birds are like really loud. Like yes. the eucalyptus is like giving off its thing and like all the flowers. <laughs> yeah, I read this um, little blurb on like, you know, silver linings you might not notice, you know, because of COVID. And yeah, some of them were like in parts of China because of the quarantine, the smog has lifted. So people have heard birds chirping for the first time and mm, however mm-hmm. long and yeah it um despite the impending feeling of like an apocalypse it is yeah freakishly peaceful when you go outside isn't it yeah it's odd yeah, yeah. so some dissonance like part of it is like oh do I feel guilty but part of it is like this is all I can do is just like step mm. outside and be like thankful that there are eucalyptus trees for me right now Um, right yeah yeah, like I don't live outside all the time like Mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier and so yeah yeah it's been really important we'll make it through together together together, apart but together maybe that's better right or we'll make it through together while being apart I don't know we'll have to work on that it's true we're not alone and there's so many people that are going above and beyond to offer virtual resources and all these types of like mental health. And this is super cliche, but um, I don't know if there are any Mr. Rogers fans out there, but uh, one of my favorite, really one of my favorite quotes in general, but I'm going to butcher this, but basically he said that like when I was a little boy and would get scared and scary things would happen, like my mom would always tell me to look for the helpers. Like if there's anything bad happening, you're always going to see the helpers and Mm -hmm. I I think that's true well this has been lovely my friends thank Thank you you for for having me I'm so glad we could connect even though we're apart I know let's do this again soon thanks for listening to life the university and everything the podcast of mostly academics brewing sipping or spilling tea Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit our site at anchor.fm slash podcast. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes, and also let the universe know on the socials. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at podcast. Submit questions for our not advice section to our email, life, the university, and everything at gmail.com, or send us a DM on Twitter. Life, the university, and everything is produced and hosted by me, Kat Gonzalez. Please tune in next time. Take care.